We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse through their industry. Pulse through their industry. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. Have to be consistent. You got to keep the big picture that hey, we're changing the world. We're changing. The league presents Electric People. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Electric People. Really excited for this week's episode. We've got the director of New England, Mr. Perfect Hair. Troy Van Bell is in the house. He has been with the company for, what, uh, seven plus years now and uh, a little over 415 personal installs. And he has currently been the director of New England for the last three years. So uh, excited to have you on, Troy. What's up, man? Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be on. It's an honor. So let's just get this out of the way, Troy. How exactly do you make your hair perfect every day? It is perfect hair. <laughs> it's, it's like industry-known hair. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, you know, Dave Madsen is, uh, you know, the standard for, you know, sales. And then you've got Troy Van Bell, standard for hair. I really wish I was known for something else besides hair. But hey, if man, I have you that own what question. you got. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to own it. It's once I discovered the hair dryer that changed my hair around about five years ago. So I hair dry. It only takes you about two minutes, but you got to hair dry first. Once you get the form you want, then you slap some gel on it and hairspray a lot. doesn't move. Gel? Wait. Like LA looks? You just, yeah, you can't just <laughs> gloss over that. I heard gel, hairspray, and hair dryer all in one sentence. So is there an order? Like what's, what's going on? Yeah, you got you to gotta hand dry with the towel and then you hair dry or I probably hair dry for a couple minutes and I get my fingers in it so that there's no moisture at all. But I, I blow dry it in the form that I want it. Then I use usually crew, the, the green kind, lather that up in my hands, put it on there. And then I put just icing on the cake, the hairspray on top. I think we could probably cut this. I think we got what we wanted from this. I think this <laughs> all right. training, I think That's this a training is going to help people more than any other thing. That's a wrap. <laughs> I just got this overwhelming feeling of embarrassment. If you cut this right now, that would be really embarrassing. <laughs> well, it's it. what a lot of people don't know about Troy Ty is when, when Jeremy Long moved out to Jersey, Troy actually – uh, were you, did you arrive before Jeremy or right at the same time or after? Yeah, I did. We beat him out here. And then I, I actually helped him move in to his apartment that, that, that first day that he got here. So we waited for him. He showed up and we helped him move in. The father of solar helped him move in. So Troy, so you came out with Jeremy or you actually beat Jeremy Long out to New Jersey to start the, the very first solar office that solar ever had. But you didn't stay out very long. Um, kind of tell us what happened and then how you ended up back at Vivint, you know, a year later. It was a, it was a couple of things. I actually really love the prospect of solar. I mean, that's why I initially went to the meeting with Alex Dunn and Jeremy and kind of got on board. But, uh, after selling for about a week and we actually sold really well that first week, I think we did nine, nine accounts together. It was snowy. So the weather was a factor. And then I also was just low on funds. So um, I just decided with talking with Amy on the phone, I'm like, we gotta, we gotta go back and sell another summer of alarms. So we um, went back, sold another summer of alarms. And then that fall after, then I joined in San Diego. Um, we just had one office at the time I joined up in San Diego. So I love the prospect of it. It was just so startup and, and my, the funds were low. I just had, I had to bail. I was going to say that, you know, we've been in business now, I mean, what, eight or nine years and there are probably a lot of people now that have gone and come back. I know a few of them offhand. And it's interesting how, I mean, how different is it? The pay scale when you were in San Diego, when you came back, I mean, do you remember what it was? You remember what you were getting paid per kilowatt then? It's terrible. 140. It might have been 130 or 140. I can't remember. What's the difference? <laughs> it was terrible. That's like a couple My, hundred <laughs> bucks for a solar install. It's just crazy, you know? Yeah, I was averaging a three point five about in san diego so and I'd, I'd come from alarms so i was literally making the same as i was doing alarms in san diego which was more expensive i remember we we were doing okay but just kind of barely paying our bills and we were the whole time we were in san diego and i was actually doing pretty well i ended up top 10 in the company during that time what were you so installing top back 10 then? Guy. what were you installing back then to make like the same money how many a quarter I had, well, we had to, to get promoted at the time, we had to install 39. So I had done, I can't remember what I did in San Diego, 
that year, but I had hit 39 multiple times to get promoted. And, and from there, I actually moved up to Fresno uh, to manage with Jeff Strong. But we did, obviously, because the pay was less, we had to do way more volume. So, you know, I tried to sell nine to 10 every week just to it's pay crazy. the bills. Yeah. Well, and you were doing it with no, I mean, we couldn't do tile roofs back then, which San Diego County, my gosh, you know, it's at least half the population, if not more. And we couldn't do electrical upgrades. So you were kind of capped at four kilowatts anyway. Yeah. And, and hence why our, our solar set, our system sizes were so small. I spent all my time in Mira Mesa and luckily there was enough composition shingle to make me survive for those, you know, eight or nine months. Man, that's so crazy. So what was it that you saw in the opportunity to get you through that? Because doing a two to three, four touch sale back then, making the same amount of money as an alarm sale, which takes an hour. Uh, what was it that you saw in the opportunity? How'd you stick through it? Well, I feel like I had an advantage because I'd already door knocked before. So I'd seen, I'd seen the satellite product, which I sold for four years and the security for three years. So I had a taste of what it was like. And I realized that the solar product was literally perfect on paper. And I'll, if I applied the same things that I learned um, doing door to door with those products, I could apply it to solar and do really well. Even if I was to make less money, I remember thinking that I was still going to do it because I thought I could do either more volume or I could just be, I don't want to say happier because selling alarms in satellite was fun, but it was just a new phase. I was ready to move on to finishing up with college. I just wanted to live somewhere and just do my thing. So it was a, it was a big part of family too. How, how many years had you been doing door to door before you started solar? I started in 2006, so the summer of 2006. And then I started in solar in 12. So I'd done six years mm. before I joined, six summers. That's awesome. And then you're, you know, we talked about you're approaching 400 and, you know, I think you're actually, I was looking earlier today, you and I, I believe, are one install apart. Oh, yes. Oh, damn. So, um, and I believe Troy is actually beating me by one. I've got one going in on Friday, so we're going to be tied on Friday. So I had three go in this week, so I don't know if you counted this week. but Yeah, I did. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff Hershberger oh. just showed me. Um, <laughs> Dang it. My question, though, is you've done it all over the country. And I think Troy is – Troy might have the most unique perspective on selling in different markets as anyone in the company. He started in San Diego. He was promoted to go be a co-manager uh, up in Fresno, then uh, took an opportunity to come open up our Connecticut market, uh, what, four or five years ago. The Connecticut market just was not ready to be opened, and we basically shut it back down. He then helped uh, or opened up or helped open up our Arizona market. Then Arizona had all their issues, and then he came back and reopened Connecticut again and is still one of the top installers in the company. So the time where Troy has been like on the doors full speed, he actually is probably one of the most prolific salesmen we have in the company. But what do you, what do you, why do you think you've been able to be so successful in all the different markets you've worked in, Troy? You know, I think there's a lot of components, I think, to that answer, but, I, but one that stands out as I'm sitting here is I, I, I had the opportunity set in my mind from the very beginning. And so for, and I got to a point, I was lucky enough to have this personality, I guess, to where I just wanted to make the company succeed. So if, if, if whoever was in charge at the time wanted me to go to Connecticut and then go back to Arizona or whatever, we were, we were willing to do it. And that's what led to so many cross-country moves. We just wanted to go where we could help the company grow and uh, at that time, it was really hard to think about what position you would end up in, you know, in the end. All I was thinking about is, hey, I do whatever I can for the company to help it grow and uh, provide for my family. So, and it, and it let us, and it doesn't mean that we didn't, I didn't go out without some pretty dark moments. When we moved to Connecticut, like you said, we, we, I moved there, I got a house, and then three months later, we shut down. And I was committing to mass to sell. So we shut down. And everybody was really good about it. Chance was really awesome about it. And he said, hey, you got two options. You can start a Boston market or you can start, you can go to um, Arizona, who, by the way, had sold like 2,000 accounts on the year so far, but they hadn't installed a single one at the time. So like, you can go try to fix Arizona. They've got a lot in the hopper. And then Chance also told me because of the situation in Arizona, he said, you can't take any of your team that we had built. So I couldn't take the team from Arizona. All I could take was myself and the Codium. And I had to leave all the reps just to mass, which was horrible. Cause I'm like, I'm basically going to be abandoning all these people that I care so much about that sacrificed to come out with me in the first place. And, um, 
so anyway, we decided to make the choice to go to Arizona, spent a year there. And it was, it was wild, but we ended up being a top five team by the time we left. I left to, back to Connecticut. So we had a lot of trials there. We lost that private utility company uh, and we couldn't sell there anymore. And so I took the opportunity to come back to Connecticut. It's been, it's been awesome ever since. I, I want to talk about the mentality because I, I actually identify with, I want, when I started in solar, I felt the way I think that you were describing when, um, you know, you said, hey, the, the pay was lower in San Diego. So I just had to sell more or, you know, the, the, the product was new. So we just had to figure it out or they needed growth on the other side of the country. So I just went there. I remember when I first started in solar, I had a really high um, cancellation rate. I was selling solar the way I used to sell alarms and learn pretty quickly that, that they're not the same thing. And I remember having the thought that, oh man, I'm going to have to sell a thousand of these in order to get a hundred to stick and somehow being all right with that. I want to, I, I think that that mentality in your experience is really helpful. Um, maybe talk about that. Talk about, okay, the pay scale is lower, so I'm just going to have to do more because I think that now the system is so dialed and often that's kind of a detriment. Do you know what I mean? Like things work so well that I think we lose the ability to develop a little bit of, of muscle. Can you expound on that? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you bring this up tight because I was just talking to somebody about it and, I, and I've had these thoughts. I'm like, we're so spoiled right now. Like everything is so, so ripe right now. And for me, and I, and, and just so uh, everyone knows too, I have recently started selling a lot more um, just as part of a competition, just kind of getting, getting the wheels turning in. And uh, it's pretty wild how, uh, how much the pay has changed and it, but it's helped me a lot. So to, I guess to tie back to, to what you're saying, Ty is, the lower pay that we got paid before and the newer pay, if you contrast those two, it hasn't, um, because I was paid, I guess, at a lower amount back in the day, it doesn't change my volume because of the newer pay that we have now. So it actually ended up being a huge blessing that we got paid so low and so little in the beginning, because there's something that happens with volume. You know, like you said, you make the adjustment when you're paid less because you have a goal in mind that you have to hit, that you want to hit. And it's crazy what we can do uh, when we need to hit a certain amount and uh, but yeah selling recently it's helped me a ton because now I'm like well I get paid way more but it doesn't matter I'm still going to sell the same volume uh, it reminds me of of something that I started saying a long time ago with uh, I can't remember who I was thinking of but dangerous is the man that doesn't need the money it's like when you're selling like when you're first starting selling and a lot of our listeners are brand new so it's like okay I have got to make this work. Like you were saying, when you move to San Diego, you got to provide for your family again when you move to Connecticut. But once you have a base and you can start selling for sport, I think that's when you can really start making an exciting impact because it's like, okay, I used to do 39 of these to get promoted. That's double the amount that we require now. And so now when the money is, is, is double or triple what it used to be and you can sell for sport, that's when you can really see what you're capable of. Yeah. And I think to add to that, Ty, cause I think sport is big. What's been the biggest thing for me is that, especially in the past is I, I always sold because of an expectation that I was going to do X. So the expectation of Troy performing was a way was the main motivator my family's always been my why you know to provide for the family but the, the motivator was a little bit of the, the game but it was more i knew chance already was gonna have a phone call with me in fresno i remember we had to go every week we had to call chance and there was like 12 of us on the call we had to report our numbers i'm gonna perform or i'm gonna do well and today even it's the same because other people expect it from me and i think if the new reps can get to the point where they're like man troy ty or adam whoever daryl whoever your dm is or director if I know that they expect this of, of me and I'm going to perform because it's expected, no matter the money, no matter how much I can make, or if I made enough, I'm going to keep going because it's expected of me. And today that, that same feeling is still with me today. When you guys talk about selling for sport as well, I think when you need the money, I think a lot of our new reps, what happens is our customers can feel that, that desperation from them. Right. And once you start making some money and you start, you know, kind of getting back on top of your finances, you're able to just relax and just sell a lot more confidently, a lot more relaxed. And I think that really was the purpose behind the new comp plan as well. It's like once our, our newer reps get one or two installs and they can make some good significant money off those first couple installs, the idea is we're, we didn't change the comp plan. So you had to sell less 
in order to make the money you wanted. We changed the comp plan to take the edge off of the finances when you're starting out in a straight commission job, right? So have you, with New England right now, New England has been under your leadership and the other leaders out here, has had one of the most successful combines in the company as a region. What, what do you attribute that to? I mean, do you attribute just to the, simply the new comp plan or um, I guess, how, what's your take on that? I, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, attribute it completely to the, the, the comp plan, although it did help a lot. Money is always a factor. Uh, I think what we did, and Adam, you were a part of this, so I can't, I can't take the credit here. And there's been a lot of pieces to the, to the puzzle out here in, in mass. We, we took the, we knew our people really well. We were really close knit and we knew what needs need to be met. And we thought out of the box and we found people that could, that could uh, meet the needs that we needed. We needed a better combine. We sat down, Adam, you and I sat down a year ago and we thought, Hey, how are we going to dominate? How are we going to get our combine to the next level? because we knew that was the, the largest part of our business is bringing in all these, all these new people. And we knew it was the fastest way to move the needle. So by putting in some of the right people and the right systems, for example, league point system, so that, you know, every rep knows what it takes to succeed. I, I attribute um, our success to that, having the right people on the bus, um, executing and following through on what we had planned to do. And then, uh, yeah, and, and we also relieved our, we relieved our DMs quite a bit. So I'm not sure if that's the answer you're looking for, but that's, those are the first things that come to mind is putting the right people in the right place and trusting them and letting them, letting them do it. I want to, I want to get back to a little bit of your background. Um, you know, you and I have worked together very closely for the last couple of years. So I know you pretty well, but I know a lot of our listeners don't. And um, I think it is important to understand, you know, how you grew up and, and then also how that's kind of affected the way you approach your job today. So uh, you grew up, what, in just outside of Seattle, right? Right, yeah. Out in the Northwest. So can you kind of give us a little bit of background of, you know, how you grew up, kind of the circumstances, and then, and, you know, just kind of how that's affected your perspective on, on the way you approach your job today? Yeah, um, I've actually appreciated these, these, um, these podcasts because it's like everyone gets a piece of their story and you can you can see how the story is really the makeup of what they become in my life is, is exactly that. Um, I grew up in, like you said, the Seattle area and uh, actually just north of there, there's a town called Marysville and really close. And, and in Marysville, a part of it is uh, the Tulalip Native American Reservation. And I spent um, a really good chunk of my really early years anyway. Actually, don't, the, the earliest memories I have was growing up in a single wide trailer um, on the Native American Reservation. So I came from a pretty humble spot. My parents didn't have the the means. Uh, my dad also had a lot of medical issues, uh, which kind of caused that shift to us, you know, living um, on the on the Native American reservation. So I, I grew up in such a humble background, but that was paired with with parents that um, taught me really all the basics of life, like save money, be a good person. Uh, I grew up in a spiritual family, so that was a big part of it, you know, be close to God, you know, that that was a really big part of my family. So I had, it, looking back on it, I had this I had this perfect mix, which a lot of a lot of listeners will, will relate to, of not having any money, but having the right people in my life that kind of shaped who I became. So, um, and then I also um, had a lot of trials, uh, which which a lot of listeners do too, with um, which is the help of my dad. Um, and, and that my my dad stopped working. I'm trying to remember exactly when that was. When my dad stopped working. It was in the early '90s, and my mom took over. They found out he had a brain tumor, but they. Um, they, when he went in the first time, he started losing eyesight in his right eye. And at the time, this was actually, I think, in the late 80s when they found this out. They went in there like, hey, what do we do? And the doctors basically said like, hey, we don't have the technology to do any operations on you. So you just got to wait. But they knew so, he had a tumor. Yeah, but at that time, they just couldn't perform. And the tumor was big enough where they just couldn't, they couldn't do anything. So we waited about 10 years till my dad had pretty much gone blind in his right eye because the the tumor had surrounded the optical nerve and they finally, there was one doctor um, that said, Hey, I'll, I'll do this. And uh, <clears throat> so they, they performed the surgery. It was a 12 hour surgery. I remember the night before um, we were in an apartment. This actually, at this time we lived in Vancouver, which is just North of Portland. I remember the doctor saying, your dad's got a 5% chance of, of living and a 1% chance of being able to, you know, have any vision at all. And I was, I was, I was, I was 10. Or something like that but I remember so I at an early age I faced those really big 
uh, I, would, I guess I would say trials of losing a parent or potentially, potentially losing a parent. And, uh, and this was, he also had had strokes. He had had heart attacks. He had a medicinally induced stroke by um, a doctor giving the wrong medication when my mom and he and my mom were in Reno. So he, he had had other, other health issues, but this was kind of like the culminating health issue that was uh, possibly going to take his life. Um, he ended up living and miraculously. He could still see out of his, out of his, um, his other eye. And, uh, you know, we continued on from there. So we, we eventually got off the reservation after about eight or nine years. And my mom went back to school to become a dental hygienist. So I saw my mom step up and take over, you know, for the family financially. And uh, so there was a lot of pieces in my life that really showed me, like my mom really showed me what hard work is. She, she took over the family finances, went back to school and became a hygienist and just, you know, worked her butt off and made it happen for our family. So I had a really good example of what it would take to, um, be successful at least financially and to make it make it happen so going through those early times in the company where I had to move you know cross country six times for Vivint Solar it was something that I had seen and something that once again I think people expected me to do and so I did it yeah. and I knew my parents my family they would have expected that of me that's incredible man so what happened to your dad after I'm still in the story is he <laughs> okay yeah so, what, what what followed after that he's a miracle so, um, yeah he's a miracle a miracle man so he made it um, he had, a, I think he had 144 staples from the top of his head down to the bottom of his neck. They basically took off his face to do this surgery. Oh and I actually remember I went in, I went inside. I remember, I think I was once again, right around 10. I went in the room. I remember seeing his head and it was like bigger than a basketball. It was just this huge, bald, inflamed head. And um, it was just, it was just crazy. Yeah, it was a walking miracle. So, and, and uh, so let's, let's, let's zoom ahead a little bit. So I would say about, um, 20 years passed by, he's still alive, um, still doing well. Um, he he's still alive and doing well doctor. now? Hold on, let me get to that. Okay. So, um, <laughs> sorry, I kind of misspoke there a little bit. So 20 years later, he goes back to the same doctor. This is actually really, a really cool story. He goes back to the same doctor, Dr. Potter, down in Portland and says, hey, I'm having some pain. You know, he had had issues the whole 20 years, you know, had to be on painkillers and things like that. Because I'm having some pain. It was kind of like a checkup follow-up and they, they realized the, the tumor had regrown to about the size of a kiwi right in between his lobes of his brain. So it had regrown and my mom and dad are like, Hey, you know, well, what's, you know, what are we going to do here? And the doctor said, and this is a quote, if I remember it right, he said, I'd rather go to hell and back twice before doing surgery on your dad, before doing surgery on you again. So surgery was now 20 years later, not an option. So his condition with his tumor was now something, and he had taken all the radiation he could take. And so uh, I guess we knew we were on borrowed time a little bit with him, but he was still functioning. And so, you know, we hadn't really thought, thought too much of it. So I can be up to current well, speed if you want, unless you have some other questions. Well, I, that's where I was going to come in. Um, I, it's so interesting with this job that, you know, we all work together, but I think, those of us that have worked together for a while and as you work together for a while um you become a lot more than just co-workers right and you really become close friends and i think i think there's this thing when when you do hard things with people there's these bonds that are formed that that accelerate your relationship into a lot more than just co-workers and and troy and i have worked together for a long time I actually had the the opportunity to meet Troy's dad on a on a river rafting trip um, a couple years ago, and he looks just like Troy. Perfect hair, you know, same uh, kind of sarcastic attitude, and um, you know, just really a good dude. And I think one of the hardest days uh, I know for Troy and and also for me was we were visiting the the Boston South office one day, and. Um, Troy was actually up training and he had an incredible training and he finishes the training and um, I'm up there kind of tying in the meeting and I just see Troy kind of put his head down and uh, he stands up kind of shakes everyone's hand and you know tells everyone great job and just kind of keeps doing his job and then after everyone leaves he we go into a room together and he just starts um you know, basically kind of falling apart. And he had just gotten a call, I believe, from your sister. Right, yeah. Um, and um, letting him know that his dad had passed away. And uh, that was a pretty rough afternoon, man. 
I remember just, you know, hugging you for a few minutes and, and, uh, that was a pretty rough day. Yeah, it was a, it was a doozy. Actually, I had, I had, um, there's some pieces that, that Adam missed that I think are, now I can see it so clearly. Now I actually went to the bathroom after the training and I had my iPhone, my iWatch on and I left my phone on the table. So we were kind of separated, but it was close enough distance to where when my sister rang, I love my sister, but we don't talk on the phone all the time. We text a lot. I looked at my watch and I saw Wendy was calling and I was like, she never calls me. So I ran back to my phone and I went outside and then it took her a while to, for her to get it out. But he, uh, you know, he luckily, the good thing here is he, he went exactly how he requested, which was he wanted to die in his sleep and he didn't wake up that night. And uh, which, which I, I was really, you know, I was really grateful that happened. But the, the coolest part about this, cause I don't want it to be, you know, Troy's gloomy, gloomy tragedies this whole time. But one thing to take away, which I'm sure a lot can relate on this call is that in that room, in that office after we had trained, um, Adam was there, thank goodness who, Adam, I know, you know, you lost your father. Um, I was with a guy named Darcy Barris. He had lost his wife um, and other relatives really close to him. Like he's dealt with so much more death. So I had these two guys um, and other guys in the room with me that could help me kind of mourn that out for, for a couple hours so I could, you know, drive home and then fly home ultimately. So that was a really special moment. And uh, anytime any listener can get the chance to have those really vulnerable moments with somebody, it's, it's one of those bonds. It's pretty, pretty impossible to break. Well, I think it's also, I, man, I hadn't heard that story and I appreciate you sharing it because uh, I can tell it's really personal. And I, I think it, it's so good to be able to acknowledge uh, the things that are happening in your life and then take a look at what you can glean and grow from it. I mean, can you, can you articulate like the strengths that these experiences have given you? Like, what are a couple things you said you learned how to work hard watching your mom, but what do you think came from you or to you developmentally through this experience? Uh, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, what comes to mind actually? So I was up in Boston North, one of our teams and, uh, I got, went out to lunch. We had a little incentive, if I remember correctly. Anyway, I went out to lunch and I got to hang out with, I won't mention his name. I got to hang out with somebody after and uh, we got to talking. Now this person just lost their father two weeks ago. It's been about three weeks now they lost his father. So instantly you have this, and this is what I take away from losing my dad was that I can now relate to people, which is invaluable that you can relate to somebody that's going through the same thing. And uh, we, were able to t- we were able to talk about it. You know, there's only so much you can say to somebody that's lost a parent. Uh, there's nothing you can totally do except no you know at least that they know that they've you know basically I was to him not not quite the same as Adam was to me and uh yeah I could just tell him hey you're, you're gonna get through it and you're gonna and I actually challenged him and I said hey my challenge to you is that you'll find something something good out of this uh, just to do anything you can to find something good out of you know losing your dad because it's, it's it's kind of it's the cycle of life right so and I think that's one thing maybe my life taught me is that uh, just to look for something good and everything that bad that happens. And, and it's not the end. It doesn't mean you made a mistake. It doesn't mean you're heading on the wrong path. It just means that you were meant to get delivered that blow at that time. And Mark Smith actually said something. I was listening to his podcast recently, actually, that really, uh, that really touched me. He was saying basically the same thing that, uh, you know, all those things, he doesn't regret anything, any of his health problems. Those, those were all things that made him stronger and made him, you know, made him who he is. So, I don't know if I articulated that like you wanted to, but the ability to relate to somebody, you don't realize that once you've been through something, you can now relate to somebody and you can have empathy. Well, it reminds me of talking to Jesse Itzler because he said, you know, he said that his advice to people is have as many experiences as possible. This isn't an experience that you would choose or, or sign up for. But the thing that as you were talking that I'm reminded of is he says, once you have more experiences, you can relate to people and that makes you more compassionate and the crazy thing is like when I look at your trajectory and your your travels and the value that you've added to this company which you know you guys talked about your 400 and something installs which is a fraction of the value that you've added to the company from forming sales training to our processes to all the different people you've recruited and 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 been a part of their development but you relate to people for a living that's what you do right and so a lot of people I think I don't know, somebody's listening to this that's struggling with something. And I, I think the advice to, to look at the thing after you've worked out the emotions and felt all the things and say, okay, how, how is this, what, how can I use this? Like, how can this make me stronger? And anytime you can connect with another person in a sales related job, 
you're doing the most effective thing. Like literally that's what the job is, whether it's a homeowner, whether it's a rep, whether it's somebody that's getting the business deal done, they go with the people that connect with them, you know? And you, uh, one thing to add to this too, this is a uh, chance won't remember this. I don't think, but, um, he had said something, it's been years now. He said to me, he said something to the effect of he doesn't like training on something that he hasn't been through. Like it's, it's really hard to train on recruiting if you, if you're not a really good recruiter. And so my whole career, I've kind of avoided, not completely, not, not avoided, but known where I, sh I can't really talk where I haven't experienced. So if you're going through something right now and you're a brand new rep, whether it's, it's in your personal life or it, or maybe you just can't get the pitch down or you're not selling well, just remember, you, you can't imagine how, relatable you'll be in the future to somebody that's going through the same thing all my moves losing my father uh, growing up on a native american reservation you know having taste of extreme diversity all those things are all things that i get to use even in this moment right now you know having this podcast these are things that i'm using that help other people so all those negative things we go through will be something that you'll use to your benefit and to other people's benefit in the future something that i really admire about troy is that um one he's always in a good mood um, I've never seen Troy in a bad mood ever. And then two, he seems to handle adversity and uh, just, you know, bullets that are shot his way with, uh, he, he does it with, there's, it's like a duck, you know, a, a, a duck that's getting rained on, like the water just falls off his back and he seems to just always kind of keep pushing forward. And you talked about it, Ty, about how relatable he is. I think, um, having been through every single phase of this company from rep to co-DM to DM to now director, having opened up three different markets, um, he just, there, there's very few people that he can't relate to. So Troy, something I've always admired about you is this ability that you seem to have with mixing both humor and then also just being very straightforward and direct. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I listen to your conference calls, your trainings, when I hear you giving DMs feedback, uh, you, you don't mince words, you get right to the point, but you have a way of doing it where they still feel your love and compassion. And is this just a style that you've kind of developed over time or is it just your personality? Like, where did you kind of learn this unique style that you have? You know, anybody that knows me is laughing right now that you're asking me this question because I've. I've been one to really mince words in the past. And I've, I, I, this is the way that I've, that I speak now with people is definitely uh, by trial and error big time. Cause I used to say things and I didn't even realize what I was saying. Another thing that helped me is learning a secondary language. Uh, helped me learn some grammar and just expressions of words and what it means to people in different language. And, and, uh, but no, definitely try now. I'm making big mistakes, saying the wrong things to wrong people and, and, and learning how to do that. One thing I, I, I've also done this just a good practice is always doing the devil's advocate, which we've all heard of this before, but just playing devil's advocate uh, in your mind as you're saying something. So you know what it would sound like or feel like if somebody said that same thing to you. So, I'm just so what's your philosophy live. on it, yeah. Troy? I don't, I don't know the side of you. Are you what, what would you say your philosophy in communicating information to like other leaders or reps? Are you someone that, that is a fan of just direct speak or how would you give advice that other people should, should um, expand their communication skills? That's a tough question. I want to deliver on this one because I actually really like it. I, I, one thing I, you know, we've all heard the sandwich, like say something good, then like kind of reprimand and sandwich to something good. But I read recently that that's actually not what you want to do because people can kind of see through it. You know, they can see the, you're kind of buttering them up and then you're, and then you're knocking them down and then buttering them up again. Um, I just, yeah, the sandwich to, is old school. The sandwich is out. The sandwich is out. We're not doing that sandwich anymore. is dead. Sandwich is dead. So, yeah. So um, I think I just, um, I think it's all about how you say it, not what you say. So you can deliver the direct content to them, but it's, it's how you, it's how you're actually saying it. Just like anything, just like a sales pitch or, you know, some important conversation you're with a spouse or what, or, or whoever, but it's how you say it. So I would, I would say it to a rep uh, with keeping my face in mind, you know, what I'm actually looking like, uh, which is all help to my wife and my my angry looks that I have sometimes but yeah, mm -hmm. look, thinking about what you look like and then understanding where they're coming from saying you've been there before. That's one of my, the things that I always mention say, Hey, I've done this before. I've been exactly where you've been. I can relate to you perfectly, but, and then going into, you know, what needs to change or what's not being done. Right. So I like, instead of sandwiching it or making them feel too complimented, I just like to say what I've been through 
uh, in a way that they know I'm not just, you know, bull crapping them. Well, and I think um, another thing is you're, you're known to be someone that connects well with people. I mean, you've had relationships at this company for a really long time. My, my, maybe my take on that to add, cause I think that's, I think that's right. I don't think people need like a, like a real like tactic, but I think when people know you care about them, it really allows you to communicate what needs to be communicated. I think it, we've all seen people make mistakes where you don't really have the relationship with the person to deliver difficult information. So, you know, or, or, or someone that has a really close relationship can just say things that other people can't, but I'm such a fan now of direct speak, but I've noticed that that works. It works when the person, if you know, I love you, I'm going to tell you something because I actually love you. And I think when people realize that, delivering the information is often harder than receiving it, right? So it's like, if you can say, hey, listen, you're a great leader. I want you to be successful. I'm going to tell you something that comes from my desire for you to get better, but you're not going to like it. And it's this, you know what I mean? Like, yes. I think when you do that, it liberates you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's important too, Ty, to when you're like, when I first moved to Connecticut, we were opening that market. Um, really good friend of mine, Josh Jones. We, we worked together for, in Arizona. He came out with Connecticut with me. And I told him, I said, hey, let's just have an open relationship. If you have something to say to me that's constructive, I want to hear it. So I just solicited that feedback early on in the relationship. And he said, same. If you have something you need to say to me, just say it to me because I know you care about me and I can handle it. And establishing that, that relationship in the beginning and then just obviously building over the years, it makes it so much easier for that feedback and those hard talks. Well, and being well, in and a for, job where we're 100% commissioned, it's like I, I've found that leaders want the feedback. They want to know, like the last thing, the last thing you want to have happen is, you know, say you're the one that's always negative about other people's ideas and everybody in the room knows that, but you, I think it's a true friend or a true leader that will pull you aside and say, Hey, you're getting a, a reputation as the negative one. Cause often that person well, doesn't know, you know? And you, you, I think what's so important, especially any of our, our leaders, like our DMS and, you know, reps that are kind of on the come up should take from this too is it's really important for you to reach out to the people above you and let them know that you want that feedback no matter how hard it is i think some of the times i've grown the most in my career is when chance has given me some hard feedback and he's come to me and said hey like you know i've gotten some feedback that you're you know saying this or doing this and it's offended this person or that person or whatever and man, it hurts for a minute, but you, you can't change your trajectory of your career quicker than when someone that you respect gives you honest feedback that is going to help change you. Right. So, and along those same lines, like Troy's probably heard me say this. Um, I've probably been said it on the podcast before, but I, I live by this thing with feedback that one to the one to the head is always better than five to the chest. And if you're on the receiving end of hard feedback or you're the one giving the feedback, just know the person receiving it would much rather you just give them one to the head than shoot them in the chest five times. <laughs> That's true. <right? laughs> That's true. Just it's a graphic it to way to look at it, but it's true. Just, just give it to me straight, man, and let's move on, right? And um, so anyway, I think it's really good. And Troy, Troy's is as skilled at that as anyone I know. And every quarter we have these combos with our dms where we provide feedback and there's times where i'll even kind of dread having a combo with a certain dm and troy has said hey let me handle this one i'll take this one for, from you and let me see if let me take a crack at it kind of thing and i think it's also really important to understand too that you actually can get better at doing that sort of thing yeah. right like it's a it's a learned skill and so Troy's had the opportunity over the last couple of years to like continue to develop that skill of doing it. Um, and I for sure had to have cleaned up the mess a couple of times, but uh, now I'm like, anytime there's a hard combo, I'm like, Hey Troy, you want to handle this? Call, call your garbage man up, dude. The, uh, well, the Troy, funny thing you mentioned, Adam, is you mentioned chance and uh, I was going to, I was going to offer chance as someone who's, who's great at this as well, who's actually gotten better at it. But you love Chance. I love Chance. Troy loves Chance. But there are few people that tell me the things that Chance would tell me. It's almost like you think that that would ruin a relationship. But I, it, since I know he cares about me, it's like he can say things that are pretty harsh. And eventually, I'm really grateful for it. Um, Troy, what's, what's some of the hardest uh, direct feedback you've gotten? 
Oh boy. I have direct feedback. Second to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you hold on. You shoot first. I can tell okay. you. I want to hear it. It was probably three years ago, and uh, I don't remember the context, but it was from Chance. And he called me and said, "Hey, can I talk to you about something?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "I'm going to give you some feedback, okay?" And I said, "Okay." And he goes, um, "I feel like this, and other people have commented as well, that if somebody has an idea and it's not your idea." that you resist it. So here, you know, we have kind of this philosophy that the best idea wins. And I just wanted to make you aware of that. And it was like, probably he doesn't even remember the conversation, but it shook me. And it shook me because I knew he was right. Like I knew that was right. And I knew it's something that I needed to work on. And it was hard to hear, but dude, I appreciated it so much because I mean, that was years ago. And I'm now conscious that I have this thing. You know what I mean? And that sometimes like when something flares up in me, I'm like, be mindful of that. And it's because a leader cared enough to tell me something that a hundred other people probably knew, but never told me. Yeah, I had, um, I'll tell you the story on this one. This one was, this was the, one of the biggest blows that I can remember. So this has been years, probably eight years ago. We were at an alarm recruiting meeting. It was kind of like a summer prep meeting and all the, all the top guys, I guess, were there with the regional and I was there. And uh, <laughs> one guy had said, he was newer. He had a, he had a little, he had a team and he's like, Hey, when should we start? Um, you know, training our guys to sell. And this is about a month before the summer started. It was really close to the summer starting. And uh, being the smart aleck that I was, you know, making a sarcastic comment, I said something to the effect of, oh, you should have done that during the preseason. Now, keep in mind, I didn't even know this person. I just <laughs> called him out in front of this, the whole group, which was, this is where, see, I just didn't realize how inappropriate that was and not a funny joke, not cool. But the, the interesting part of the story is that I didn't get any feedback on that until I managed over this guy in Fresno in solar. So I actually, that it came around like, what, I don't know, four years later, I'm managing uh, this guy in Fresno. And I love this guy. You know him too, Ty. Uh, love this dude. Anyway, he finally told me, he came back. He's like, you know what, Troy? My first impression of you was that you're the biggest jerk that I'd ever, I'd ever come in contact with. You called me out. I didn't know I was brand new. And we were really good buds at the time. Like, I feel I felt so bad that I did that, and uh, and Jeremy Long's called me out on it too, and my wife's been really helpful. So I that that big moment of being I was so appreciative that I got called out because I didn't realize how inappropriate that joke was. Was now I, I laugh about it because it seems like such a no brainer not to do. Yeah. So trial and error helps a lot. <laughs> All right, Adam, you're up. Everybody else. I was just sharing. gonna. I was just gonna say skip. Um, nope. <laughs> Well, you don't even Chance know who's called. listening to this, dude, and you have to say it. You don't even know. <laughs> I think I actually gave that chance that feedback about you, Ty. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm I'm teasing, but uh, so Chance called me. Well, you guys remember? We I feel like we've talked about this on the podcast before, but back in the back in the you know the glory days when I was selling full-time, I was so short-fused with our friends back at corporate, and I would just send these, like, ruthless emails to, like, you know, people in the call center or, like, anyone. I didn't care. Like, I was just beyond, you know, inappropriate, and anyway, they, they came out with this naughty list, like a naughty and nice list, where everyone at corporate did this poll of who the meanest sales reps were in the company and you were on the you were on the naughty list and then they came out with the night the nice list and anyway chance called me and he's like hey we did this thing at corporate where we had this you know he basically explained it and he goes um i just gotta tell you you were ranked number two on the naughty list <laughs> and, and I, I immediately immediately because i'm so competitive I was like, well, who's number one? Like, why am I not, you know, why am I not number one? <laughs> and, and, um, uh, I think John Sanders was actually number one. So I'm like, well, I'm, like, I'm like, I'm in pretty good company, man. So like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but um, no, but that actually hit me pretty hard. And what he said, what hit me hard was he said, look, I get it. You're frustrated. I get all this, this, that, whatever. And he goes, but you know, I need our directors and our VPs and our management at corporate to view you as someone who respects them and their time and their job and everything that they're doing. 
Otherwise, it's going to slow you down in your career. And when the time comes for promotions and things like that, if I'm promoting someone who is really disrespectful or not, you know, not professional, they're going to then question my leadership, right? So, so it was a really good teaching moment for me. They did the, to come full circle, um, they did the same poll like six months later. And actually Evan Pack, who Evan is like one of the, like the nicest, most chill dudes ever, literally like hated me at the time. And um, <laughs> it's understandable. And then like it's understandable. Six, months, six, six months later, they did it. And Evan, I had turned him into a raving fan. So he, he like was my biggest fan at that point. And I was voted like number three on the nice list, like six months later. So good recovery, um, you know, yeah, good. A man can change, but I do feel like, you know, it's like one of those things when like a coach screams at a referee on a sideline and then, you know, three plays later, he tells me he's doing a great job. Like the referee is like, like you can, you can toy with someone's emotions really quickly. So I'm like, I feel like I beat him up pretty good. And then I was nice. So like that kind of accelerated my, uh, my comeback story a little bit, but there you go. But hey, yeah. Troy, what do you, what, what advice do you have for, for people beginning their leadership path or people that want to grow, but don't necessarily know what that means? Uh, you know, one thing that's, that's come to mind a lot over the years, I think it's kind of an innate thing, but I feel like I got, I got blessed with, with some deep loyalty in my blood. And I think if I'm, if I'm an aspiring leader or if I'm a sales rep, uh, loyalty is just one of those things. If you think about it, it's just a simple, well, even like a marriage, uh, loyalty is so important. I mean, I don't know how you rank much over loyalty and being able to trust the other person being loyal to them. And if you're starting a company, so think about it from a management perspective, if you're starting a company, you need your go-to people, just like Vivint Solar needed, needed in its early days. They needed very loyal trusting or you know trustworthy people they could put the company's hands into to have us grow so if i'm an aspiring loyalty or <laughs> aspiring loyalty if i'm an aspiring rapper leader uh loyalty is going to be on the top of my list of something that i need to remember being loyal to those around you loyal to the people that are under you and doing doing what they view as valuable what what chance and adam and utah view as valuable is what i should view as valuable because uh, what I view from my perspective, it, it really isn't that valuable if the people above me in charge don't view it as valuable. And so I would say loyalty, it's not something we talk about a lot, but I've had a lot of people have been extremely loyal to me in my life. And uh, I look at the leadership of Vivint Solar and all those that were the most loyal always end up in the best spots. They always move up because people can trust them. I think that's so great true. advice. Troy, so we're almost out of time, but um, I mentioned this earlier. New England has had one of the strongest combines over the past, you know, six months to a year out of, you know, any of the regions in the company. From a rep perspective, what advice would you give our new reps on how to accelerate their learning curve when they first start with us? This one, I'm glad, I'm glad you kind of teed up this question because this is such an easy, an easy answer for me. Uh, just over the years of doing solar interviewing, firing, uh, mentoring people, there's always one common denominator. And I bet everybody, if you're listening right now, knows exactly what I'm going to say. And that is time put in. There is nothing more, more important or valuable than putting time in to a job where you sell a perfect product. We sell a perfect product on paper. So if you can just do one thing and that's take your time card and clock in every day. So set up a schedule, commit to that schedule and clock in. You will find success handing out the best product on the planet. That's how I've seen it. That's how I viewed it my whole career. So there's one piece of advice to a new combine person. It's work your brains out, study, uh, ask a lot of questions, solicit feedback to your leaders and uh, yeah, just go hard. Which I know that's not like an amazing, amazingly deep answer, but that's, that's it's the right thing. answer. It's the answer that, yeah. Every time people, when I sit down with them, they're like, I'm like, hey, you know, what, what caused you not to have such a great quarter this quarter? You know, what, what, how'd you let yourself down? What, you know, what happened? And they'll say, oh, every time it's time put in. That's always it. And if, and if, and if everyone's saying that, if all your leaders are saying that, then uh, it means you can be successful pretty easily as long as you put in the time to sell a perfect Well, a perfect here's the crazy course. thing about time. Like, everybody knows that's the answer. But, you know, when people talk about anxiety, when they talk about, stress when they talk about fear it's usually a result of time like there's nothing that calms me down when i'm selling 
more than having enough time. If I want, if I'm in a deal that I'm in a sit down in and it blows up and I come out and it's 4.15, my effective brain, if I'm in that is telling me you've still got time and nothing calms me down more than that. But on the inverse, when people are stressed out or unhappy in the job, a lot of times it's because they feel the panic of not having enough time. They get on doors at four, they have to go home at 6.30. And even saying that, the, the, the constraint that happens in your gut comes from not putting in time. But if you just say, hey, listen, I'm canceling my life from one to nine, all of a sudden you're really relaxed and you can go relate to people because you've got time. I, I think committing to time is one of the best things you can do for your progression and your mentality. Well, not only that, but when you get ahead of it, especially when you find success early in your time block, it almost feels like it extends your time window. You know what I mean? Like that's why, I, that's why we push so hard for people to get out and create ACs on Monday. Like take the edge off your week and all of a sudden your week feels much longer and like you have a lot more time to be successful mm -hmm. that week, right? So um, it's, it's weird you have this sort of conundrum of never feeling like you have, like I always feel this crazy sense of urgency, especially right now in the winter when it's getting dark earlier and you know, on the East Coast, we know the snow's coming and things like that. Like the urgency I feel is really crazy. But the trick is getting out and giving yourself enough time every day, like you say, right? So, um, so yeah, it is an interesting thing. It's good advice, Troy. Troy, um, it's been awesome having you on, man. Uh, a lot of people are going to really take a lot from your advice and, 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 you know, all the nuggets of wisdom that you've learned over the years. And we really appreciate you having, having you on. Is there anything else that you kind of want to, I guess, give a, give a shout out or a, a, any advice before we wrap up? Oh yeah. I just love to give a shout out to all the New England leaders that are my co-parts. I love all those guys and they, they help out a lot. Guys and gals, we got girls that help out a lot too. And uh, the last thing that I would say just to end with um, outside of, these, these, these things are so great to listen to. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy if I can help one person's day by something that happened in my life. But what, one thing that I've learned uh, more than ever doing this job and just in the last 10 years is that every single thing that we do culminates into, and we've all heard this, but culminates in this, into what the end result, every little decision to, to work that extra hour, to make sure you're starting to working at noon every day or whatever it is, or being a nice person or, whatever it is that all culminates into the end result that you want to be it's not one big decision or one really stressful decision it's all the little decisions up until then so just creating good good habits good work ethic habits in this job and in life gets you to where you want to be it's a simple simple equation for me it's great advice anyway man. thanks for having me guys it's been awesome thanks for being here troy you're the man thanks for hanging out with us today this is electric people Take these principles and go be electric. <laughs>